I used to go semi-camping in a group of like 50 to 150 people in Syria. And um, most of the times we would stay in monasteries. I was with the kitchen. I was one of the four people who were responsible of feeding everyone. I think we finished cooking. Then I went and people were eating. Then I went up to like shower or something and came back down. And the whole space was over flooded with sewage. The whole kitchen where we're supposed to feed everyone was flooded. And only like three of us put on plastic trash bags and started cleaning like shit flooded all over that surface. I've spent a lot of time thinking, what is it about me that made me feel okay about taking that on? And to what extent that's a good thing and to what extent that's something I don't want to keep in me. Like to feel okay jumping into the shit of hundreds of people and cleaning it. And it's it, it's kind of a metaphor of so much of my life as a trans woman, as a Syrian trans woman, where like people and society is constantly shitting on me and I'm constantly cleansing the shit and to an extent where I developed really advanced healing skills that I can process and move through a lot of shit. Welcome to Swana Stories. This episode's storyteller is Habiba. Habiba is a Sufi healer, artist, and organizer based in Los Angeles on unceded Tongva land. She graciously shares her voice, moments from her childhood, her relationship to the land and music in Syria, and her path and continued work towards healing and helping others to heal. Heads up that this episode contains descriptions of transmisogyny, violence, and torture. So my name is Habiba. I grew up in Syria. I grew up in Damascus. Most of it in Damascus, some of it in Aleppo. I'm a migrant, a refugee of war, and a refugee of gender. And I am a Sufi spiritual healer. Um, being a Sufi healer is the center of my life. Being a girl deeply hiding where I was told that I am one of the boys and I should be with the boys. And that was um, always traumatizing um, day in and day out, but it was also magical in some ways. It meant that I, I got to spend so much of my time on the streets. Um, boys were more allowed to be on the streets. I did not experience that, nor do I reflect back on it as a privilege and access, um, but rather a, a very violent act because it meant a deep habitual denial of who I am. But again, being on the streets meant that I had that uh, physical connection with the city for many hours every single day. And so I can still feel what Damascus felt like touching my butt, sitting on her streets, on her sidewalks, watching the time pass, watching people pass, 
waiting for some kind of um, salvation from the horror of dictatorship and the gender oppression that I was experiencing and I was not understanding or did not have any language for it at the time. But it also meant that I connected with the ancient city. I did all of my schooling in the ancient part of the city. Um, so I developed very deep connection with the materiality of the ancient city, of these the stones and the buildings that are thousands of years old, and the structures and the spiritual spaces that are very ancient. And there were so many things that I couldn't understand about what I was feeling and what I was experiencing. Um, and no one, absolutely no one around me felt safe to help me even begin working through what I was going through. Um, the city felt safe. Not the people in the city. The people in the city, like the dictator and all the many dictators under him, the secret police and the friends and everyone was violent to different degrees. But the city and her history and her knowledge and her spirituality and the infinite number of ancestors that have lived, inhabited that space nonstop, continuously for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Damascus is one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities in the world. Um, and so I got to develop high sensitivity to the spirits and to the city in that way. I used to um, skip school to go to those ancient coffee shops with some friends. Sometimes the principal or someone from the school they knew that that's what we did, and they would leave the school and go walk around the neighborhoods of the ancient city into those coffee shops and find us in the coffee shop and drag us back to class, uh, which felt really charming and scary at the time, too. I would also, like, climb on top of the old buildings and start jumping from one roof to the other by myself. And it felt really amazing, especially when I was on top of churches or mosques, um, to be jumping on the roofs of these spiritual spaces that I was really enchanted by, but also knew deep down that I was not fully welcomed there within the space, but I was fully welcomed by the spirits on top of them. I still carry that, I think, sensation and the way I relate to spirituality and my spiritual practice and that my ultimate teaching and permission comes directly from the divine, um, not from what te my teachers may tell me it's okay or not okay for me to do. I, there was one church where like, I would go inside the bell tower and the bell was really big metal bell and it was broken and the piece that is I don't remember I don't know what it's called in English the piece that is inside the bell it was like on the ground and I would go inside the bell tower it felt like a cave it was really dark and I would just hide there and feel both isolated and safe and then I took that metal piece it was very heavy and took it home kept it in my room for some time I brought one friend with me once and they were like, oh yeah, this is interesting, but also you're weird and I don't want to do that again. <laughs> um, and so I just kept doing it by myself. Images that come to mind, just the fields in Syria and the farmers, the very old towns and villages in the desert or on the coastal line over the hills, overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. 
the amazing amount of stars, unbelievable amount of stars that you could see at night over there. It's still more than more 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 stars than I've ever seen anywhere else. And you know, the secret police is very present in daily life. Everywhere, the images of the dictator over buildings and inside the school rooms and on the books, printed on the books that we had to read from. Plus, we had to memorize his quotes by the letter. It was like we were made to feel very scared to um, miss like one letter or not repeat what he said 100% exactly the same, the same way he said it. They're secret police, but they want to be known as such, and they want their presence to be known, but they also want you to know that they are secret in the sense that anyone could be them. And this way you're afraid of everyone, including people in your own family, including your friends. And there's always rumors about like, oh, this friend who's very close in the friend group is either secret police or someone in their family is secret police. So be careful. So you can't be, you can't really express what's on your mind to anyone. Plus my mom, every single morning before I went to school, when I was like, since I was like five or six, she would hold me and stare at me really intensely and remind me to not say anything or think anything. That's what she said every morning before I went to take the bus and remind me that no one is to be trusted and that just let them have the country. The country is not ours. So it's the sense of like letting go of the belonging and the right that we have to our own land just for the illusion of safety and for some reducing risk. It does reduce risk if you're operating out of place of fear, unfortunately. But then like that fear gets deep and destroys so much inside of us. That that voice of my mom reminded me of the possibility of anyone being either a secret police or reporting me to a secret police. Then there is the other voice of my mom giving me love at different points and these voices compete in my being. It has taken me very long, consistent work to turn down the voice of fear and nourish the voice of love. The secret police, they took over the basement in the very residential building and neighborhood that where I grew up and they took over between when I was about two years old until I was about nine years old and they would detain people in the basement and they interrogate people and torture people and violate people sexually and, phys and physically and emotionally and a lot of times we would hear people screaming and we hear the screams into our living room and I heard these screams as a child growing up and as a traumatized trans girl which meant that my defenses were already a lot lower and I was very permeable and being autistic made me even more permeable and so the voices of those people who I hold with so much love and compassion and respect and boundaries the, those voices completely penetrated my being and became the, their screams and their pain got mixed into the composition of my being. 
So I had to set boundaries with so much love. It was one of my earlier practices of setting boundaries. And it was with these voices, their spirits, their resonance, their history. I've never got to meet them other than just record their voices in my body. And it became, to large extent, a big part of the soundtrack of my growing up, in addition to a lot of other beautiful music that I grew up listening to. But what I was listening to growing up, it was a lot of Feruz, a lot of Ziad Rahbani, a lot of Western music that was helping me dissociate from the context that I was in that felt very oppressive, again, very magical, but also very oppressive. The financial limitations, visa, passport limitations, and um, knowledge of different languages limitation made me feel deeply trapped inside of Syria. And Syria spiritually was very opening and liberating for me, but in reality as a country and as a society was extremely limiting and um, devastating for me. And listening to Western music was a way to dissociate, to imagine a world that where my gender might be accepted. I think Feruz and Ziad Rahbani are like the spine of my musical upbringing. And Debke, the moments of celebration, especially big parties and celebrations and weddings. The Syria that I grew up in was very sealed. It was a um, socialist dictatorship, sealed and closed off from the world. So it felt like most of the times we were Syrian people amongst Syrian people. We only had two TV channels. One of them was called Syria. The other one was called Syria 2. And the Syria was like open, I think, for like from the morning until like midnight or so. And then Syria 2 was open from the afternoon until like later evening. And most of it was propaganda for the regime and there was some cultural content. Most of the cultural content is Syrian and Arabic. And there was very little, maybe one or two hours of things from outside of Syria. So the exposure to what's beyond Syria was very limited. So just to like depict the atmosphere of how Syrian and Arabic the Syria that I grew up in was. When we went to these weddings and big celebrations, the force of celebration and the energy of celebration was between us and our bodies and our land and our music for the most part. It was very rooted, it was very vertical. It was not very horizontal. It was not like looking around and seeing the world around us. It was more about we're trapped in, in this limited space and we're looking down at the land and up towards the divine. That nourished a really deep connection with the land. And so when we did Depke and when we danced and jumped our bodies and our oppression and our pain and our isolation and our deep Syrian abandonment, it was vertical, it was hitting down the ground and screaming up and jumping up really high and 
carrying each other's bodies literally on each other's shoulders. And this intense physical stomping and other form of dance, feeling the vibrations from our land back into our bone, back into my joints, I can still feel those vibrations. It almost hurt how hard we would hit the ground and lose ourselves in, in those celebrations. And it was so beautiful. It was a, a pleasure and a joy and catharsis that is very unique. It felt so connected to the land that it was and so limited by the walls of Syria that it was no longer Syrian. And the music was not music. The music was just part of the land. The identity was just being with the land. The celebration was just breaking our body on the land for the land. And that nourished a sense of attachment and love and unity with the land so deep in my body that is deeply foundational to who I am and the work that I do and the way I relate to other people and the way I honor when other people talk about their culture and their relationship to their land and their ancestry. Um, a lot of that developed for me through those moments of deep communal celebrations in relationship to the music as part of the land, the music as part of the fruits on the trees, the music and the culture as another form of the flowers and the jasmines that were growing around us and the roses that were growing in Damascus around the rivers. It, it wasn't music as a form of art like music is for me right now. It was more just part of the composition of the environment and the elements, the natural elements of the environment. I, I can still feel those, the repercussion of those vibrations in my joints. As for the moments that are foundational to who I am, I can think of these four things. I was, I think, between 10 and 12, and I was in school, and I heard the word Sufi for the first time in class. It felt like it resonated in my body, even though I had no context for the word. And then the, when the teacher mentioned Ibn Arabi, who is an important Islamic and Sufi figure from, I think, about eight or 900 years ago, when the teacher men mentioned his name, um, while I was like in deep dissociation, suddenly all of my body became alert and very present, came down to earth, and the hair behind my neck and my back stood up and I don't know if that how you say it like got um activated and I turned towards the teacher feeling that someone called my name personally and it took me up until it took me about three decades to understand that connection to understand my deep 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 spiritual connection and lineage with Ibn Arabi that was very foundational moment and connected to who I am right now as a Sufi spiritual person. 
Next to that moment, I think of the moment where I was four years old and I put my sister's dress on so naturally. Like I didn't think that I was doing a thing. And I remember exactly how it feels in texture. And my mom had been violent with me multiple times before then and after then. But she's never been violent with me in the way she was at that moment. And it was also the calmest, one of the calmest moments I've experienced my mom. I've never in my life, other than that moment, experienced that kind of extremely calm violence, where she was so incredibly firm in the way she looked at me and in the way she denied me that possibility. And she showed me in like one sentence and very, very deep gaze that if I do that again, it's very likely that I will die or I will end up being tortured like our neighbors. And I was four years old. That was like the big shock validation moment of like, okay, my mom is both my caretaker and my safety, but also my killer and my torturer. So that's another moment that it's very foundational to who I am and how I operate and the kind of freedom and agency that I inhabit every single moment that I'm wearing a dress or a skirt or tights or makeup. I still work through that moment every time, but right now with a lot more joy and empowerment and less terror. I still have the desire to wear that one particular dress and with pride and joy. The fourth thing that is foundational to who I am today is my neurodivergence and the way it influenced my spirituality. Um, so since I was very young, I noticed that reading was very hard for me and I struggled with letters and words, even though I also loved letters and words and poetry. Uh, reading was never felt really fully accessible to me. And that is because I am dyslexic and autistic. Um, at the time, these are not uh, words that were available to me. I just knew that reading was hard. And I noticed that other people around me were using reading to dissociate and find refuge from struggles and oppression. Uh, and I wanted to do the same but whenever I tried, reading stopped being um, accessible to my mind pretty quickly. And I could not get lost and find that refuge. And I, so I had to, again, find that somewhere else, to read somewhere else, not just read words. So as I mentioned, some of the reading was through talking through spirits, through deepening my relationship to the old structures of the city, the stone, the river, the plants. Um, but also that reading turned me inwards towards my body to uh, develop a skill to decode information that 
was recorded in my, the way my blood flew in my body, the way my DNA expressed itself out of my cells, the way um, my ancestors were communicating with me through my bone and my bone marrow. And these are skills that I still go to today um, as I am still dyslexic and um, reading is still limited, uh, uh, more limited than I would like it to be. But it also opens for me while it closes in uh, the access towards book to a certain degree it opens for me access to read ancestral knowledge and information that is coded within my body and in the environment um, in a way that I think it would not be as accessible if I um, give more of my attention to books and written words. So in, in this way, that also infirm, informs my understanding of my neurodivergence. It informs what it means to be autistic, to be dyslexic. So to me, these words that are um, in the way they're used today, they are largely scientific, but um, I experience them as very spiritual. I experience autism as a form of spiritual orientation that turns my attention towards the divine, towards ancestral information, and towards spiritual expressions. I feel that I want to say I hear you, I see you, I feel you as much as I can when I think about people, when I think about community. I know how hard things are, or I can imagine, I don't know what everyone is going through, of course, but I feel that my first impulse to validate the daily drainage of meaning and spirit that we go through um, living in um, this time of uh, capitalism and this time of imperialism and colonialism. Healing is possible, is really possible. And empowerment is possible. A sense of self that is full of love and joy is possible. And in a way, I'm, I'm reminding myself of that while I say it and saying it to myself from a year ago, from two years ago, from five years ago, from 40 years ago, because it was really, really, really hard to believe that it was possible for four decades of my life. But on some level, I must have always kept believing that it was possible, otherwise I wouldn't still be alive. Now I know it's possible. Now I'm experiencing it, and I pray that I experience more of it. Um, I still experience suffering and pain and disappointment and heartbreak, but I also experience a sense of groundedness and clarity and joy and pleasure that's so rich and infinite and powerful and reliable and accessible. Swana Stories is produced by me, Kehan Azadi. The artwork and look of the show were created by Paradise, also known as Paradis. Check out more of their work at paradislily.com. 
You can connect with the show on Instagram at swanastoriespod. Please consider leaving a review or sharing with a friend. Thank you for listening.